Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I am probably the most followed activist in the United States. I think it's 3.8 as we speak million followers on Instagram. With that comes opportunity, comes a way to reach a lot of people, but it also opens every decision I make up to criticism. Hello, I'm Annie McManus, and this is Changes, where we look at all things change, how it impacts us and how we affect it. Speaking of change, in March last year, the coronavirus pandemic hit and the world changed in a way that it had never done in any of our lifetimes. In America, a 26-year-old black woman called Breonna Taylor was killed in her home by police officers. No charges have been made. In May, it will be a year since the death of George Floyd, which sparked protests all over the world. My guest on Changes this week is American journalist, author and civil rights activist, Sean King. As you heard, Sean is incredibly influential, previously hailed by Time magazine as one of the 25 most influential people in the world on the internet. He uses his extensive social media platform to promote social justice. You may have seen his posts being shared a lot around the Black Lives Matter movement. That's when I came across Sean as an Instagram account that was being followed by everyone around me and being watched closely as a place that gave the real truthful happenings in America during the BLM movement. Sean posts videos and pictures taken on the ground at the scene of racially motivated attacks and then asks his followers to help identify the perpetrators. He's headed social media campaigns which led to the identification and arrest of the men responsible for the assault of Andre Harris, as well as exposing information in seeking justice for the killings of Ahmed Arbery and Michael Brown. Sean also asked his followers to donate to victims' families of police brutality and racism. He used eBay and Twitter to raise $1.5 million to send tents to Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. So he has a huge amount of people and fundraising ability at his fingertips. Sean is a co-founder of an organisation called Real Justice, helping to elect prosecutors who support criminal justice reform in the States. And he also runs the North Star, a crowdfunded independent media platform for liberation journalism. Prior to that, he set up the Courageous Church and later Justice Together, another crowdfunded organisation which he disbanded soon after. Last year, Sean released his book called Make Change, How to Fight Injustice, Dismantle Systemic Oppression and Own Our Future. At any given time, a Google search of Sean King's name will reveal a myriad of contradictions, controversies and accusations. In my research of him, I found many instances of him being hailed as a hero in one article and a fraud in the next. 
He has repeatedly defended himself against accusations of mishandling of funds, with some saying money hasn't been received by those he was fundraising for, disinformation and a lack of accountability, accusations of retaliating against detractors in an overly harsh way. Sean has even had to defend himself over his racial identity. I wanted to speak to Sean for a few reasons. I wanted to find out more about the psychological makeup of a person willing to put his life out there in the way that Sean has. I'm also very interested in the double-edged sword of social media, how Sean uses it in his opinion as a force for good, but how it can come back and bite him at any given time. I'm also interested in the questions of ethics around Sean's working process, naming and shaming people online in the way that he does, that kind of vigilantism, and also sharing graphic videos online. In the interview, we address all of the above, as well as Sean's past, his childhood and the real motivations for why he's dedicated his life to activism. I also ask him about Robert Cantrell, a man who was wrongly accused in the shooting of a seven-year-old girl, Jasmine Barnes. Robert Cantrell resembled the sketch initially released of the suspect in Jasmine's murder. At the time, Sean posted a picture of Robert Cantrell on Twitter, saying that people had called him a racist and asking for information about him. Sean later deleted the tweet. Police credited Sean with providing a tip that helped lead them to suspect Eric Black Jr., who later admitted he was involved in the shooting and was charged. Seven months later, Robert Cantrell committed suicide in jail, where he was being held on an unrelated robbery and evasion charge. As you will hear, Sean's chosen path in life and passion for justice stems from his experiences of racism in childhood. And in this episode, you're going to get a sense of the man behind the news stories, his beginnings, his motivation, his regrets and his hope. As you will expect, there are explicit references to racism and racially motivated crimes in this episode. So please be mindful if that could offend you or if that could trigger you. And please, let's do this. Enter the podcast, Sean King. Okay, Sean King, hello and welcome to the Changes podcast. Glad to be here and good to see you and good to be speaking with you. Absolutely. Um, I feel like there's such a vast amount to cover as this podcast is about change and you are <laughs> man, all about change, personal, professional, dedicating your life to enforcing it and affecting it. So I think it might be a good place to start is just with our three fundamental questions that we ask every guest on this podcast. Um, the first being a change that you went through in childhood that, that impacted you in a big way. Yeah, you know, I have a book that came out last year called Make Change. And yeah. it's not an autobiography. It's really the book is about my philosophy of change and how how I think change works and how we can use our lives to change and impact the world. But I tell several stories in the book on moments that changed me and how in some ways it's in these kind of pivotal moments that impact us where we find our purpose and our meaning in life. There are a few moments that I could really point out, but there was one moment it's a traumatic moment. I almost see my life in two phases, before this moment and after this moment. I was 15 years old. I grew up in a small town in Kentucky, which is a state in the American South. 
me and a lot of my friends dealt with a lot of racism and bigotry. When I got to high school, I dealt with this type of bigotry on a regular basis. I had a student one time throw a jar of tobacco spit in my face. On multiple occasions, I was chased by students in their cars, like where they were literally trying to run me over. In March of 1995, I was brutally beaten by a group of students at my high school. I ended up missing almost two years of high school recovering from the injuries. I had three spinal surgeries. I had fractures to my face and ribs. As much as I was really injured physically, emotionally, I, I was a, a shattered child in a lot of ways. This is 26 years ago, and so a lot of the words that we have for trauma and mental health, we didn't really have a lot of that language 26 years ago. I was definitely depressed, sometimes even suicidal. It completely changed me in ways that I never could have imagined. Before I was assaulted, I was very much still a child with kind of regular teenage thoughts and dreams and aspirations. My childhood was gone in a lot of ways after I finally recovered from those injuries. It certainly made me into the kind of serious person that I am today. In some ways, it took some of my joy, I think. But it also put something in me that caused me to be incredibly empathetic and sympathetic to people in pain. It caused me to be very much an advocate for people who have experienced racism and bigotry and, and bullying. It caused me to really have a, a passion for justice. I moved to Atlanta to go to college just a year after my last spinal surgery. I've been very much involved in the fight for justice, the fight against racism, police brutality. I've been involved in that fight now for almost 25 years. It took everything, good, bad, and ugly, to change me into who I am. And so I can't say that I'm glad that that happened to me, but had it not happened, I'm not convinced that you would know who I am. A lot of what I do today, healthy or unhealthy, is still me in some ways trying to make that moment right. Have you ever thought about forgiving these people that did that to you? And how do you feel about that word when it comes to what you went through? Yeah, I think I, I, think I have forgiven them. Um, my mother and my wife are very different. I've been with my wife since I was in high school. Right. So was she, did you know her when you were going through all of that then? I met my wife toward the end of recovering from those surgeries and we were right. just we were kids. I think both my wife and my mother they can hold a grudge. <laughs> um, <laughs> and for me I needed to let go of it to be able to move on with my life. I've seen a lot of people and I work with a lot of people who've experienced harm and trauma. If you're not careful it can take over your life in so many disturbing ways. And so for me, no one ever asked for forgiveness. I need to say that. No one ever apologized. No one ever really acknowledged the harm that they caused. But I needed to let go of it to be able to move on with the rest of my, my young life. When I grew up in Kentucky, I was never accepted as a leader. And when I moved to Atlanta to go to Morehouse College, which is where Martin Luther King went to college, I was accepted as a leader the day I got there. 
but it required me to to relinquish the harm that was caused and to try to move on. Three of my kids are now the same age or older as the kids who did that to me. Right. I don't know that any of the young people who did that to me had any idea the the way they were going to impact my life. That moment might have only lasted about 90 seconds, but it changed everything. T- tell us about your, your family. I saw you in a article you called your story a peculiar American story and I thought that was an yeah. interesting way to describe it so yeah. tell me about your family uh-huh so uh my mother was a was a single mother and I was the product of a interracial relationship that my mother had had in the late 70s that was weird at the time particularly in small town Kentucky there were very few what we would call mixed or interracial children And there weren't even a lot of public examples. The internet didn't exist. And today, children of interracial families and and interracial parents, there are web communities and Facebook groups and all of that. And so in the 80s, when my mother was raising me, she taught me very little about race. And this is no critique of her. Very little about race, racism, bigotry. She she taught me what she knew, which was to try to treat everybody kindly, fairly. A lot of even my ethic of like standing up for people, she always would teach me that. But when I got to high school as an interracial child at a school that had really deep racial tensions, I walked into a place with what I would call like a really low racial IQ. All of my friends who were raised in traditional black families had been prepared on how to deal with racism, how to endure it, how to respond to it, how to talk about it. And when I got to high school, I had none of those lessons. At this high school, you pretty much had to choose a racial group to be a part of. Okay, that's that's interesting. So you had to go one way or the other because there was such division. For all of my all of my life up to that point, I had friends who crossed almost every boundary you could think of right. race, class, uh, gender, style, all of these things. But when I got to high school, the divisions and groups were strong and harsh. There's a book about it called uh, Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? That's the name of the book by Dr. Beverly Tatum. You know, my school was that. It was a deeply segregated, isolated school. Right away, that put me in a peculiar place as someone who had been a bridge builder with a mixed race background. That idea of having to pick a group, I I wasn't prepared for that. About 10 days into my freshman, my first year of high school, I broke up a fight between a young white student and a young black student. I wasn't even a major player in that moment. Like, I just literally broke the fight up as a peacemaker. I thought nothing about it. Breaking up that fight immediately made me a target of a group of racist white students at the school. And my entire high school experience was like downhill from there. I didn't even know that I had broken a code, you know, that I had intervened in some type of power struggle None of that occurred to me. Hmm. When I traveled to Atlanta to go to college, 
that was another major pivotal moment of change for me where I left small town Kentucky. Atlanta is the biggest city in the American South. And the college that I went to, it's a black college of predominantly African-American students, but black students from around the world. And it's an all-male school, all-male, all-black school. For the first time in my young, young life, I was able to completely just let my guard down after four years of enduring racism day after day. By the end of the first week, I was the president of my dorm by my second year, I was student government president of the entire school. Those horrible years that I had spent in Kentucky had made me into a resilient person that could connect and relate. And it made leadership in some ways seem easy compared to what I had just been through. Getting to Morehouse allowed me to heal. It was there that I met uh, many civil rights legends, hundreds of civil rights leaders attended Morehouse College across the years. So it was um, a beautiful, beautiful place for me. You then went on to go and start a church, the I Courageous did. Church. Yep. Tell me about that. Well, I, uh, I stayed in Atlanta. We just had a real heart and passion for the city. And uh, we started a new church. We being you and your wife? Yeah, my wife and I and a, yep. and, a gr and a group of maybe 40 of our friends. And a huge part of our focus was just helping people who were hurting, including Atlanta had a huge homeless, still does, had a huge homeless population. And so we provided tens of thousands of free meals. It was a beautiful community of people who sometimes felt like they didn't fit in anywhere else. And what change happened in your life for you to, to leave that courageous church and, and walk away from that period in your life? Oh, several, several things. As a leader in my 20s, I thought I knew a lot more than I really knew <laughs> and uh, thought I knew how to be an effective leader way more than I really did. And in some ways, I think I, I moved way too quickly for the community. We had almost a thousand members in our young church and I wanted people to move at a pace that always made sense in my mind, but was often way outside of the norm for how churches operate. So it caused a lot of tensions in the church. And as we experienced those tensions, I got a beautiful job offer in California. My family and I ended up moving to Southern California. We were there for almost five years, left the church that we started. It's it's still there. Uh, the right. church is still there in Atlanta. But we had a, um, a wonderful experience in California, for sure. This kind of begins your your professional life as an activist and before we get into that I just wanted to address when I started researching you and looking into you because I, I like so many people discovered you on Instagram especially over 2020 as a kind of person who was just so insightful and on the ground in learning about what was happening in America and the more I looked into you um, the more controversy I found in terms of People making accusations, yep. mishandling of funds, disinformation, lack of accountability. 
there was other accusations of you retaliating against detractors in an overly harsh way. I read a lot of, you know, um, counter arguments from you and public statements. But yeah, I just wanted to address that now before we get into that, because it feels like there's a big cloud of controversy following you at the moment anyway. And I wanted to know why you think that is. Well, a couple of things. First, I don't think that my life as an activist and organizer, I don't think that it started after we started the church in Atlanta. I worked for several years in Atlanta's jails and prisons full time. I was a traveling teacher at almost 15 different jails and prisons. I would speak sometimes 10 to 12 times a day, five days a week. That experience really rooted me in like fighting for change in the justice system. Now, this is in 2004, five and six. Right. I, I worked for multiple organizations as an as an organizer and activist full time. Before I started the church, I was an activist when I was at Morehouse and we were fighting against drug disparities, uh, sentencing disparities against police brutality. I don't see a cloud over me. I am more than my Google search. <laughs> you know, I am more than my Twitter trending topic. There are a couple things that make leading in this age difficult. Difficult for me, but for many people. A tiny percentage of what I do every day makes it to Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. It's not even a microcosm of who I am and what I do. It's, it's just a random hodgepodge of that. You know, the work that I do day in and day out, a lot of it is incredibly public. Over the course of any given day, week, month, year, I make hundreds of decisions. Some of them I regret. I've never been the person that would say like, hey, if I could go back and live my life again, I would do everything the same. Like, I've never felt that way. Like, if I would go back and change things about yesterday, last week, last month. Sometimes I have to make decisions in incredibly difficult moments. I'm on any given day, like right now, there are about 100 families that are impacted by police violence that I'm working with. I have two staffs that I manage of about 35 people. And this is through the pandemic, through, through all of that. We're fighting for laws and, and elections in 25 states. At the end of the day, all of that, good, bad, or ugly, it all comes back on me. It's a lot of pressure. I don't regret it. Whatever pressure I have, in some ways, I asked for this. Like, I am a public leader. I could go be a private person in society. But what happens is, with such a following and such a reach, everything you do is scrutinized. You know, it's 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 tricky. It's not and it's not just me. It's um, celebrities around the world and people with large followings deal with this daily. It just so happens that I'm kind of at this weird cross section of celebrity and activism and social media. It's uh, it's a difficult place. Like I'm always trying. I'm always tinkering, adjusting, experimenting to try to fight for justice in a way that's different, fresh, effective. I don't think there's a mistake I've made that I didn't either publicly acknowledge and that I don't personally regret. What's your biggest regret? Oh. Like, you know, you say, you say you go back and you would, you would change things. What would you change a 
of all of the things? Of all if you of, could, if you could do one. There are several things. Like we have security at our house right now, just right outside of the door, armed security guards. I travel with security. Wow. My family and I are threatened regularly. While I love the work that I do, and I love the positive impact that it can have sometimes, I have a lot of guilt and remorse about the impact that it's had on my wife, my kids, my, my mother, my extended family. My brother passed away a couple years ago. It I'm had sorry. caused him a lot of stress and anxiety. And I just, I have, if I could do everything over again, there is a part of me that wonders if I would do any of this. Like that's a, that's a big if. Probably once a week, I have to come to grips with the reality that the decision to be a leader, a really public leader during this time has caused a lot of problems for my family. I don't know how to fix that now. I just have a deep, just a deep regret for the stress that it's caused my family for sure. There's a quote in your book that says from you, it says, it's the story of how I fought so hard for change and failed yeah. miserably for years. How are you failing? There's so many ways like courage is not the absence of fear. Leadership is not the absence of failure. It's pushing through fear, pushing through failure. In the book, I'm talking about a hundred families that I have fought for, that I that we demanded justice for, that got no justice at all. You know, nothing, nothing like justice. Even going all the way back to when I was at Morehouse, a young man named Amadou Diallo was murdered by police. We fought tooth and nail, got nothing. In 2006, we fought for justice for a young man named Sean Bell, nothing. I had to come to grips with why is that? Why am I giving this everything I have and these families that we're fighting for getting nothing? Now, we weren't failing just because we were making bad decisions, but what we were doing wasn't working. It caused me to say, how can we reverse engineer the problem and figure out who could give these families justice and how can we change that? Out of me kind of confronting the failure of fighting for so many families came us starting an organization called Real Justice. That work, which I was, I've literally worked on all, all day today, we're going into our fourth year, and uh, that work is probably the most important work of my life. While we still fight for individual families who are impacted by injustice, we are particularly fighting to change the system itself and to change the people who lead the system. So here in the United States, we have people called district attorneys. They lead the local justice system for a city, and we're fighting to change those people and then hold those people accountable to the promises that they make. And uh, so we've now elected nearly 25 district attorneys all over the country. Had I not confronted the hard questions of why are we fighting so hard but getting so little in return I don't think we ever would have started real justice you know mm. there was another organization before then though justice together right in 2015 yeah we started, you started that up yeah go ahead no I was just gonna say what what happened with that 
some of what I've been trying to do is is difficult. We're trying to build large online communities. When I say large, I mean sometimes we have now nearly four million people who are a part of our projects. Managing them today is different. We have a staff, a paid staff of dozens of people to manage these communities. But in 2014 and 2015, when I tried to start these communities, it was literally just me, like trying to figure out how do we start online organizing communities, complete volunteer driven, and over and over again, trying to manage those groups. I just couldn't get them to work without them either being infiltrated by people pretending to be somebody else or people that were would would join the group and then actually be white supremacists or bigots and would come into the group and cause trouble. So it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to manage hundreds of thousands or millions of online volunteers. It's hard now, even with the paid experienced staff that we have. It's always a struggle. The -hmm. difference is if I do it and it doesn't work. I will get right back up and try again. I'll tinker with it. I'll adjust it. I'll try to figure out what what failed, what flopped, what went wrong. and How can we try again? What, what I see sometimes is people who want me to make a mistake and then leave and never like never, never do this work again. And uh, that that's just not how that's not how I'll do it. You know, like part of why I tried to tell my if you will, my origin story in my book was the work I do is an extension of who I am. There's no there's no mistake that I could make or problem that I could endure that would cause me to say, like, no, I'll stop fighting for people that have experienced injustice. It's it's a it's a root part of of my identity. Mm hmm. It feels like there's just again reading about you and reading articles that there is people who are naysayers of your work in terms of the stop starts, the beginnings, the ends, how there seems to be quite a lot of promises and over enthusiasm on things and then a kind of lack of following through. I don't think so, though. You know, like what you'll see in critiques is people won't literally won't mention any of the work that we've started that is succeeding. Right. And so. Real Justice is probably the leading civil rights organization fighting for district attorneys in the entire country. We have a a competent, brilliant staff. We have tens of thousands of supporters who back our work financially. We issue public, for instance, we we have to issue for Real Justice uh, financial reports quarterly. Yeah. But when people critique the work, they never talk about those quarterly reports. They never mention them. They never, like, they're all available. You could go to, we have a website in our country called the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission. These reports are all downloadable, available. It has every donation, every expense. And, you know, we're, we're into our fourth year of, of success of electing district attorneys. You know, three years ago, I started a media organization called the North Star, We laugh because we see full articles every day that say, where did the North Star go? 
we've published over 2,000 articles, including today and yesterday and the day before. We, we have six podcast series that have produced over 500 episodes of original podcasts. But that North Star, you did promise TV studios and, you know, you promised a lot with that and had to retract on that, right? Well, outside of the television studio, I think we've kept all of our promises. It just, the television, we promised too much too soon. And, um, you know, and that's something I said, like we promised out of the gate. Now, mind you, we had no outside investing no corporate backers or sponsors we're just fully funded by membership dues and our goal was to do podcasts articles and a video program and the video program didn't work but the podcast and the articles did and i'm proud of it like i i love what we've done you pivot you change you adjust you know and here's the thing um does twitter look like they imagined it would look when they started it or did they pivot and change you know startups change we hope to do it one way we've changed the way we we've done it i don't have any regrets around like changing the actual work of an organization Uh, i'm proud of the north star i'm proud of our staff i'm proud of real justice when people talk about my fundraising never once have i ever received a single penny from any of the fundraisers that I've done for families, for charities. And no family has ever said that. It's a complete concoction. Mm. It's Ill- what people are saying that I've done is literally a crime. And every fundraiser I've ever done has been analyzed, surveyed, audited. And I'm like, I'm proud of it. I'm not going to stop fundraising. Just last week, we raised enough money to buy a man, a new home, Michael I Thompson, who who was just released from prison, you know, like I raised most of that money myself on Instagram and, you know, from donors that have supported us. And so I'm not going to stop writing. I'm not going to stop fundraising. I'm not going to stop leading. And a part of that, Annie, is I will fail again. I'll, I'll fail. This is 2021. I'll fail 10 more times this year and next year and the year after that. But most people who lead understand that, like that's, that's part of leading, you know? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's so interesting, isn't it? The relationship that you have with this, as you say, immense community of people who are invested in you and your work. A lot of people to the point where they'll, you know, they'll spend money on membership and stuff. And also they want to help you with your social justice. So they're, you know, you're, you're crowdsourcing, you're finding out information about crimes and misdemeanors through your followers. And then you're able to post that online. But then equally, it could work the other way where if that is your job and you're posting things about people online and when they haven't gone through the courts, you know what I mean? It's kind of that kind of name and shame system uh, that's happening. I guess the same can come back on you in that way and has done over the over the years. It's an interesting relationship, isn't it? I'll make I'll make that trade. I'll make yeah, that trade. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of the people that I fight for, they'll never get justice in the courts. Mm. And they've tried. We've mm. tried hundreds of times. And so I can name names of people and police officers. And we patiently fought for justice through the system. We tried the system. Mm. And over and over and over again, the system failed those families. I've seen families shattered into depression, homelessness. I've seen families have to be hospitalized from just the sheer brokenness of having their loved ones killed by police and then fighting for justice the way they were told to fight, only to get nothing in return. And so I don't have any regrets fighting for justice the way that I do in the sense that sometimes the only justice we may get is making someone who did incredible harm, making them famous for it. Do you ever worry about the repercussions of that, though, for their families or, you know, if especially if they're exonerated? Well, like, let me give you an example. Um, there was a police officer named Darren Wilson who killed a teenage boy named Michael Brown. And Darren Wilson wasn't exonerated. They just never charged him in the first place. That's not an exoneration. It's, mm. he, ki he killed a child. He chased a child and repeatedly shot and killed him. Now, he wasn't found guilty in a court. I don't care that Darren Wilson is now made uncomfortable because I tweeted about him. He killed someone. When I think of the families who've experienced so much harm, I work with the family of a young man who was killed almost a year ago today named Ahmaud Aubrey, And two men... Uh, chased him down and a friend followed them and they shot and killed Ahmad as he was out jogging. Say those men are found not guilty in court. That's not an exoneration to me. These They, they did murder Ahmad. Like they shot and killed him. He was unarmed and nonviolent. And if those men are uncomfortable that we have fought for Ahmad and in the in the process of fighting for him, they are now their names are known and their faces are known. No, I don't I don't have hard feelings about that at all. Not even a little bit. Now, their families 
will have to process the consequences of their decisions in the same way that I told you, Annie, that my family has to battle through the consequences of my decisions. The only difference is I haven't shot and killed or choked or tased anyone to death. I've caused no physical harm to any person in my entire life. These men who murder and maim men, women, and children, if the only penalty they pay is being famous over it, that's that's nothing to me. Not can at I, all. Can I ask you about um, Robert Cantrell? Yeah, that's a... Com- did you see where I said Robert Cantrell murdered someone? Or no. did you see an article that said I said that? No, I, it wasn't anything about that it, in terms of yeah. anything you said directly or indirectly. It's more right. just how it played out when you read about it is, is kind of yeah, disturbing. It's it is disturbing. Mm. I never once said Robert Cantrell murdered or harmed anyone. You said, he was never a, you said, said a lot of people said he was a racist. Oh, he was definitely a racist. Yeah. I literally spoke to members of his family who said he was an open yeah. racist. His, but but you said it in family, the context his, of that case. No, like you said it in the context of this guy is wanted. I can't I, I can't quote what you said. Obviously, I don't want to start getting into the, that. But it feels no, like if you, you have you put, it, you pulled, you, if you have it in front of you, please read it. I should do. But you did you did you not use him and put the photo up of him around that situation of Jasmine's and, and people looking for her killer? You may remember there there are two important parts of this case. Okay. A young girl was shot and killed in the back of her car, and there was a national manhunt for the person that was believed to have done the shooting. Yeah. The Houston Sheriff's Office issued a drawing of a man that they believed did the shooting. Mm-hmm. Several members of Robert Cantrell's family literally reached out to me and said, we think that man in that drawing is Robert Cantrell. That's what happened. Mm -hmm. At the time, he had actually, at the same time of the shooting, he had participated in a unrelated crime and, and was wanted for that crime. People then came to me and told me who the actual shooters of the child was. Yeah. And then I reported that to the police. Mm-hmm. Like I literally helped the manhunt to identify yeah. the actual shooters. And those two men are in jail right now. And so Robert Cantrell's family thought that was him in the drawing. It actually looks just like him. Yeah, I it's, saw the two. It's uncanny. It's weird. Mm. But I don't believe Robert Cantrell had anything to do with it. I don't even know if he was anywhere near the scene if someone made that draw made that image up but he had nothing to do with it and i literally found the men who did but no i never said that he did it and and it wasn't just me who was looking for him as a suspect it was literally the houston police department and sheriff's office who who also thought robert cantrell looked just like the drawing and he did what's your relationship with the police you know when you're working kind of in that way where you're kind of trying to assist them in their cases? Well, over the past 10 years, I've probably only worked with police maybe on two or three occasions, primarily uh, when there's some victim of what we think is some type of racial violence. Yeah. And uh, one is when police 
ignored a threat of white supremacist violence in Charlottesville, Virginia. And a young teenage boy named DeAndre Harris was brutally beaten by white supremacists. And he was beaten by these white supremacists in the parking lot of the Charlottesville Police Department. We then had to do the hard work of tracking down and finding the men who beat DeAndre. I did that. I dedicated months of my life to finding them, and we found them. And the same is true when a young girl was sh- was shot and killed in Houston. I was actually, my brother had just died and my family was on vacation. And my mother and my brother's family, and she was killed while we were grieving the death of my brother. And several people in Houston, including the family of the girl who was killed, asked me if I would do the hard work of finding who killed her. So I literally stopped this vacation and this kind of moment of grief that I was with my family until we found the men who killed her. I don't regret doing the work. It's hard. Is it messy? It is, but I don't regret it. I don't regret asking if people knew who Robert Cantrell was. I don't regret that. Sean, talking about your Instagram following and the kind of influence that you have, and especially last year, it felt like the whole world was watching America. As I said, it felt like a news source. It felt like people were coming to your site, to your Instagram, to find out what was going on on the ground. How have you reconciled that, like like, like yourself, with the fact that you are now, essentially, as well as being someone who is fighting for families and fighting for justice, a news source on that Instagram? And do you have any ways of kind of safeguarding yourself for that? How does it work? Well, I mean, I've worked for multiple media organizations across the years. I was the senior justice writer at the New York Daily News. Yeah. I was the justice writer at The Intercept. I was senior legal writer at Harvard Law School. I have two degrees in history. And so I feel capable. I, I've, I've written two books. I feel like I can effectively post news on social media. You do have to be careful. You can post something that you think is accurate at the moment and it could turn out to not be accurate. The thing is, every news organization in America has done that. In the world, BBC or CNN or the New York Times, they have had to retract dozens of tweets and posts. If you open up the Sunday newspaper, articles will have corrections in papers all over the place. And so you should always strive to be right. And so I have a process of trying to make sure that something I post is accurate. And if it's not, you literally just edit it and come back and say, this was off or that was off. Mm -hmm. But social media wasn't created to be the news. It doesn't have the nuance of a book. It doesn't have the nuance, certainly, of of a newspaper. And so it's quick, it's fast, and sometimes you just have to make sure that you balance that out with a process to make sure that you've got it right. Last question, Sean, before I let you go. 2020 is a year that you will never forget in terms of the history of you know the black communities around the world. And we're coming up to a year now, the anniversary of Breonna Taylor's death and then George Floyd's as well. 
How do you think when we look back at, at that last year, 2020, and the huge unrest that happened off the back of those two deaths, how do you think that that, that 2020 will sit in history? I know in your book you talk about how hard it is to really be able to get a perspective of what you're living through at the time in terms of yeah. history. But 2020, looking back, how do you think we'll look back at it? I think 2020 um, will be seen as one of the most difficult years in American history. And you can't divorce all of the racial injustice from the pandemic, where a half a million people died from a super virus, um, where a presidential election ended up being one of the most consequential moments in modern American history. And so 2020 is one of those years that you can't summarize in a sentence. It was hard. I mean, that's that's a gross understatement. It was a very difficult, painful year. People survived, people endured, people protested. And ultimately, my hope is that we'll look back on it and feel that having endured such a difficult time that we that we learn some hard lessons from it. People rarely learn the most difficult lessons from from hard moments like that. And so that's yet to be seen for me. I'm proud of a lot of the things that I have seen change. I'm proud here in the United States that Trump was defeated. But, you know, we're still in the shadows of an incredibly difficult time. The pandemic continues. Police violence and racism continue. And, uh, and so we have to keep fighting for sure. Sean, I'm going to leave you to go and have your dinner with your family because it's that time over there. <laughs> I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Lovely to chat. Thank you so much for yeah. your time. Uh-huh. Take care. Bye now. Thank you so much to Sean King for taking the time. He has five children and it was dinner time over there and I, I sensed that uh, he was being shouted at <laughs> to get off Zoom. Sean's book, Make Change, How to Fight Injustice, Dismantle Systemic Oppression and Own Our Future is out now. There's a link in the show notes and of course you can go follow him online. Go and see for yourself at Sean King. Let us know what you thought of this episode um, and we'll shout you out on the podcast. Last week was Billy Piper and you guys went nuts for this one. Thank you so much for all your comments and for sharing it and spreading it around. I loved talking to Billy, as you know, and uh, we posted a clip on social media about her talking about inappropriate questions um, from old interviews of her past. Louise Pearson on Instagram said, that last statement got me good. The frustration of how available we have to be all the fucking time nailed a feeling I've been experiencing for months, even years. Hello, Barker's picture who quoted Billy it's that giving and niceness that's made me angry Barker's pictures said I both love that Billy has said this but at the same time I'm sad that this is now a commonplace feeling brilliant and influential hello Butterfly Chow who said Billy Piper is an absolute powerhouse I saw the Yerma live recording and I was blown away by her performance she is by far the best actor of my generation Right, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. All comments on Apple Podcasts or otherwise are so hugely helpful. And I am going to be back next Monday with none other than Katie Price. Model, businesswoman, author. She has had the biggest roller coaster of a life and we're going to hear all about it. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Louise Mason with research from Leila Simone Springer through Rethink Audio. See you next time.